Welcome to the Grace City Church Podcast, where we believe that Jesus died to reconcile us to God, to others, and to make us reconcilers. We're so glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're watching, God is doing transforming work in you through this message. Amen, amen. Y'all can grab a seat. It's a little foretaste of heaven right there for you, family, because that's what we the redeemed are going to be doing. Singing, amen. Um, hey, it's good to see you. I feel like it's been a while. Um, my name is Will Plunk. If you haven't had the chance to meet, uh, if you're a guest here, I am one of the pastors and get to serve uh, this Sunday uh, from teaching, which I'm looking forward to that. Uh, we're going to be looking uh, at the first chapter of the book Haggai. And uh, so I know you know exactly where that is in your Bible, so go ahead and open to it. Uh, it's a little small, little. We got, we'll have the text on the screen too. Uh, this really comes to us and me by way of Elizabeth Amadio, because uh, one Sunday, it was when we were still considering purchasing the building in North Charleston, she just said, hey, well, have you read Haggai recently? And I said, no. And she said, you should. And so I did. And then I've been in there like almost every day, seriously, for the last couple months. And God has been encouraging me and rebuking me. And so I was like, you know what? I think that'll be good for all of us as one standalone before we jump into our church series. I really do think it's a good text for us to look at. There's a lot of rich truth there. Uh, hey, before we jump in, though, got some exciting news I want to share with you, and it's this, is that we have officially hired David Kite uh, to be a pastor on our staff, and uh, we're incredibly excited. Uh, David has been a pastor for many years, and um, for a long time, pastor to church that met here for a number of years, and so if you were with us in our First John series, you can go back, actually, and hear more of his story in that regard, but he's pastored for a number of years, and then just under a year ago, uh, him and his family started worshiping at our church. Um, they started attending. They went through membership. He was there serving. He's serving on facilities. They did premarital counseling, uh, lead a community group, and it's been really special to get the chance just to see the way he specifically has led um, and the gifts he has, but also his character. And it just felt like an incredibly good fit. So we're excited for him to be joining our staff team. Um, he will be the pastor of community. So if you have any problems with community, now they're his responsibility. And uh, excited about that. Now, for real, it's, it's, um, we're excited because we think there is a chance for us to spend more energy and more time doing what we're called to do, which is to shepherd and disciple our people. And so we, we view this as a blessing. We're very excited. Um, one thing I do want you to know philosophically uh, this has been something we've really always believed but haven't practiced it to this point because we haven't needed to, um, is that David will not be one of our governing and ruling pastor elders. So the word pastor and elder is interchangeable in the New Testament. He will not be governing and ruling the way that me, Will Krause, and which is here, they just had a baby, Will Krause and uh, Richard Brown is, uh, are, are. And um, part of that's because there's scriptural precedent to do that. Um, a lot of it has to do with just time and energy we want to make sure we spend on somebody before they move into a board like that. And so here's a verse that just gives some biblical precedent for it. It's very common practice in churches. Uh, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. So give us our honor, family. Uh, just kidding. Especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So you see uh, that not everybody who ruled and governed preached and taught, at least with the same responsibility, and most likely the inverse is true. There's some type of division in labor, and that's why lots of churches have pastors doing different things. So um, if you have questions about that, though, send an email. 
Uh, literally, I love to respond and help and, and talk uh, through any question you might have. But overall, we're incredibly excited for uh, David to be joining our staff. And uh, I'll show you the picture one more time because you got Hunter, Adaya, and Princess right there. So beautiful family and excited for them to join the team. Um, okay, so this morning, uh, I'm going to read Haggai chapter 1, and then I'm going to pray for us. And uh, it's a really good word, I think. And uh, it can be hard to jump just right into the middle of prophetic literature, so I'll give us some context after we read it, but I just want the chance for the word to kind of wash over us. Haggai 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say... The time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while the house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their due, the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, on everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock and all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to the Lord's people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. Let us pray. Father, We come before you in this new year with expectation, not expectation simply about what can be different or what we can do different, but expectation that there is indeed a God who is alive and a God who has spoken and a God whose word we can be comforted by, a God whose word we can be challenged by, a God whose word can give us life, a God whose word is true and infallible and trustworthy. That's what we expect. We expect you to do what you've always done, which is to be faithful. For you to speak to us today because you are a faithful God who speaks. A God who is always speaking. Lord, may we have ears to listen this morning. May we have ears to listen to the rebuke that lies in this text and the great encouragement that lies here. May you quiet us where we need to be quieted. Like the Psalms say, quiet us like a weaned child with its mother. 
May we have peace, in a sense, as we get a chance to hear your word. And then, God, I do want to pray for those of us who are in this space with questions and doubts and confusion or hurt and brokenness, that you would speak to them, that your hand would extend and you'd comfort. Do it only you can. All God's people said, amen. Haggai 1. In the second year of King Darius, the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. So we're jumping right into prophetic literature. We don't know a whole lot about Haggai, but what we do know is he's a prophet in the Old Testament, and he operated the way prophets in the Old Testament work, which is different the way that if you believe in the way prophecy works and that gift continuing today, or in the way that preaching and teachers and all this works. Because we'll go and get a word and bring it. But God and the prophets of the Old Testament, he would get a prophet and speak it. So he would grab them and use them as a mouthpiece to speak to us a word that is true and timeless and is now pinned down for us to receive. And this word is from Haggai. Who is it to? Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. He was the Persian-appointed ruler or governor of Judah, and so he represents the political power of that time period. And to Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest. So he's the rightly appointed priest that represents the religious power of that time period. That's who it's to. Verse 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house. So that's the scene set for us. This is in the time period that would have been post-exilic literature. So it means that the people of God had inhabited the promised land they had always hoped for, under, and then a king was appointed, and you have the Davidic monarchy where God's rightly appointed king was on the throne, but then they started acting a fool, started messing up, and so then a foreign nation comes in, and they all go into exile for hundreds of years. However, God is faithful to his promises, so he brings them back. And what we get, we're entering into a time period where they are just brought back into the promised land where they inhabited Jerusalem and Israel. And as they get here, this is what they're saying according to verse 2. The time hasn't come yet to rebuild the Lord's house. Let me read you a little commentary, little quote on the text. It says, they, the people of God, had started building the temple shortly after the first returnees from Babylon made their way back to Jerusalem in the days of Cyrus. Although some progress had been made in the years following the initial return from Babylon, enthusiasm for the project had since waned as the people increasingly focused on their own needs to the neglect of religious priorities. This is where I started feeling like God be stepping on my toes. You know what I mean when I say stepping on my toes? I'm saying God's coming all up over into my business. This is my business. But he's coming into my business, and he's stepping on my toes, convicting me of things and encouraging me around things. But what happened is, again, they enter back into the promised land, and initially they were excited about the things of God. They started building the temple. But over time, enthusiasm waned. They started, their priorities started to change in their alignment. Instead of focusing on religious priorities, they started to focus on their own self-interest. That's what I'm like, yeah. Where at one time, the thoughts and desires and hopes of our hearts were towards God, but then something shifts. And it starts to be misaligned and we start becoming self-consumed or just thinking about ourselves and our own ideas and our own thoughts. 
don't know if you feel this way, but I, I feel this way. And I was thinking about myself, and again, God has been encouraging me and challenging me on a lot of ideas in this text. But I was also thinking about our church and how, how I think for all of us, myself included, there's some of that there. And, and maybe, maybe it's true, too, for you, like when you initially met Jesus and the passion and the excitement that was there, that somehow that has been misaligned. But I, I literally even think, I was thinking and praying about the beginning of our church and how there was like this enthusiasm and zeal, too. You know what I'm saying? Like people uprooting their lives to move, to be a part of a church where they weren't going to have a job in the new city. Like, like, like I, was, I was thinking about just... Just the way in which there is anticipation that, that the God that we serve is a God who, 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 who wakes people up out of darkness, literally like brings them to new life, and there's an enthusiasm to go, I want to go share that news with people. Like literally, I want to tell people about the gospel because I, I expect God to work, and I want to be a part of it. Or just like serving, I mean, people like waking up early and to participate in it, or, or I just think about even the, like, the vision for our church and the expectation and the hope that God is going to create a people that he is one to be the way that they are. Like we were singing it and we were saying, all eyes on King Jesus, that Jesus died to create a group of people that are multi-ethnic and generational and economic. And the anticipation that he's going to do that and the expectation, the participation, because you're like, this is who God is. Like an enthusiasm that I just think over time what can happen is it can wane. And this literally is the rebuke to the people of God, right? That's the setting. Hear the rebuke in verse 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. It says this. I don't, know if, I don't know if God is sarcastic. Like, I don't know if that's kind of a sin. But this is, sounds a little sarcastic to me. Because if you look at verse 2, he said, you're saying it's not time to build the Lord's house, Right? And then verse 4, he says, but is it time for you yourself to be living in panel houses while my house, while this house remains a ruin? So he's like, you over here saying, it's not time to build the Lord's house, but you go working on your own house? That's the idea. And this brings us to the center kind of point that permeates Haggai, and it's this. Here's the question for us to think about is this. Is, are we busy working on our house or the Lord's house? Are we busy thinking about our kingdom, our house, ourself, or the Lord's house? And this is the, the chief question of the book of Haggai. I, I don't know about you if you've flown before, but every single time you fly and get on a plane, the attendant is going to first tell you something, right? Like the plane's going down and the oxygen masks come out, what are you supposed to do? You put it on yourself first, right? Like literally, before you help your kid, don't help your kid. Put it on your, you know, don't help your elderly parent. Put it on yourself, you know what I'm saying? No, like, but really, there's probably good reason for this, right? Because, like, you put an oxygen on yourself so you don't pass out in trying to help them. But it's this idea that you got to help yourself first. And I, I've heard this preach, and there's a lot. They're like, for us, we have to first think about self, because if we don't care for ourselves, how are we going to be able to care for somebody else? And there's definitely some logic to that idea. Definitely some logic to that idea. And there's a movement in, that I think is, is rising. In some ways, I think it's good because it's in reaction to a culture that would neglect self in a way, especially neglect the inward person. You know what I'm saying? And, and people who would not be able to say, you know what, like New Year, like I, I did therapy last year, like Jill said. Like that's not, 
You know, like there's a movement that I think is good, but, in, but I think that there's some fatal flaws in it. This idea of self-help and self-care. And I don't think that the Lord is actually going to say it in Haggai. There's some fatal flaws in the idea that my chief concern should be myself. That I must first think about building my own house. I must first think about getting my life in order before I think about God. He gives us some points. Look at verse 5. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Verse 7 is a repetition of verse 5. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. So what we get is a mini inclusio. That's just a cool biblical way to say there are bookends that are identical. And the purpose behind it is to draw attention to what's in the middle. So this, these two statements, five and seven, are demanding reflection and introspection. They're demanding for the people of God, Haggai's demanding, say, look inwardly. Whose house are you building? And how is it going? So verse six says, you've planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes on it. He says, when we chiefly think about ourselves, we actually get caught in a web of diminishing returns. When we think about our own house first, we get caught in a rat race that will never satisfy us. When we're thinking about establishing ourselves first, we get put on a cycle of failing fulfillment. And so the question for us is, how is it going? How is it going when we are first and chiefly thinking about our house over God's? You know, that's the question, right? Are we working on the Lord's house or God's house? And I think it's easy to go, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm God's house, right? I think the better question might be, where are we building our house over God? Where are we doing it? Because if we think that this isn't for us, I would encourage us to go back and read 1 John chapter 1, where it says, anyone who claims to be without sin has deceived themselves, and the truth is not in them. I think we all have places where we are focusing on self over God. You know, I, this text, they're not saying that they will never build the Lord's house. They're instead saying it's not time yet. Look at verse 2 again. I'm going to show you verse 2. So what do they say? They say, this is what the people say, the time has not yet come. They're like, we're going to get around to it. It's just not yet. And then if there's anybody who has <clears throat> like a legitimate reason to not start work on the Lord's house, it is the people returning from exile. You know why? Because they come back to Israel and literally they don't have houses. So like they come back and they don't have houses. You're like, that's a good reason to work on my house, Right? Like, I don't have a house. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, verse 4. If you look at verse 4, it says, um, it's time for you yourselves to be, to be living in paneled houses. Some commentators think that word paneled does mean extravagant, but just as many commentators just think it means roofed houses because the word is covering. So it's like, you're busy spending time putting a roof on your house. You're like, well, I need a roof on my house. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, that's a regular 
thing. And if you look again at verse 6, look at verse 6. What they're doing is not extravagant. It's not like they're out there partying. These are just basic things that they're focusing on, basic needs that they're focusing on. So what does it say? You've planted but harvested little. Like that's agrarian culture. You're just doing work. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. He literally is like, you're just, they're just doing basic stuff, yet that basic stuff still isn't, he says, you're, you're misaligned. And I'm thinking like, if I'm there, I'm like, literally, I'm just listening to the flight attendant. Like the plane is going down, I'm returning from exile, and I'm just trying to survive right here. But nevertheless, it says that their priorities are misaligned. We have a little commentary I want to read on it. It says this, it is time to rebuild the temple. In this message, Haggai makes it clear that the Lord was unimpressed with the excuses the people had fabricated in order to justify their own selfish interests. Through the prophet, the Lord disputes all attempts to justify putting personal interests ahead of spiritual priorities. This is why I'm saying God was stepping on my toes. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know about you, but I am like the king of self-justifying. You anybody else? Like, I'm really good at it. Like, if I do something bad, I can give you a great reason as to why. These circumstances happened, and that's why I had to do this. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know about you, I, I could, like, I could crush it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm an eight on the Enneagram. I like the challenge. So I'm like, I got I'm like, I don't even agree with what I'm fighting for all of a sudden. You know, like, like I can do that. But, but what this is, is this is a challenge for us to actually reflect and introspect and to go, where? God, have I misprioritized you and have put myself ahead of you? Chiefly, if you look at verse 6, this is what's really interesting, I think, is the, the deep call to reflection is around this idea of you're working hard at something, but it isn't actually producing real fruit for you. There's this flurry of activity but, but you're actually not getting returns the way that you think you should be. You notice it? You've planted, but, but you haven't harvested a lot. You, you, you're eating, but you're not, get, you're not getting full. You're drinking, but you're not like, it's the areas of our life, like seriously to consider the areas of our life where we're putting a lot of work in, but there's, it's like a diminishing returns. It's not really netting for us. <clears throat> for me in this, I, again, I've been in it for a while and just praying and talking to God and and I was thinking about areas of my life where I feel like I've put a lot of work in and not a lot's happening. And one of those areas is biblical rest, all right? And I don't mean like regular, the rest of like, oh, watching Netflix. Like it's not that I'm struggling with watching Netflix and escaping like this. I'm talking about biblical rest. And I've known I've struggled with this since college. Like literally for over 11 years, I've known I've struggled with this. And I've read stuff about it. I've read stuff about it. I've taught classes on Sabbath. Like, I've done a lot, but, I, but, but even though I do this work, like, I never felt like I was really resting the way God wanted me to or really enjoying what he had for me. I mean, literally, my, my phrase last year was an ordered life, and I feel like it never got ordered. <laughs> I prayed it every day, seriously, every day, and God reworked a lot of stuff, and I was like, why, you know? I feel like I was in this web of diminishing returns. I felt like I was doing work, but all my work had holes in it, and I really, as I was spending time in this word... I feel like God really told me, Will, is because you're afraid of people. And I was like, I don't think I am. 
was like, I'm not, like, I'm not trying to fit in a lot. Like, I don't feel like I struggle with insecurity. He's like, well, you're afraid of people. I was like, I just, he's like, the way it works for you is you're afraid of not having people's respect. So you're insecure about making a decision that people wouldn't respect. So you're trying to build a house of respect for yourself. And that's why you don't rest. You work the hours you work because you want people to respect you. You're afraid of people. That's the word, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but literally, like, it's that I wasn't really aware, but there was something in me that at the end of the day, even when it comes to this idea of rest, was really trying to build my own house. And it's funny how, for, you know, I'm a pastor, and you can be working on the church to build the house of plunk. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can be doing things that are regular things or good things, and it really be about building your own house. And for me, it was that instead of trusting God with the fact that he is, through Christ, made me someone who, you know, is respectable. And I can just trust his assessment of me. Like literally the Bible says I can't be afraid of people and serve God in Galatians 1.10. Are you trying to win the approval of man or of God? Are you trying to please people? You cannot please people and be a servant of Christ. Where is it for you? Maybe it's an area that's diminishing in its returns that you're working really hard. Or where might you be focusing on your house over God's? I think we all have a place. For some of us, it really is work, I think. We work long hours. And you're like, I have to. Do you know what my boss is expecting of me? I have to. Like, literally, it's there for me. Like, I have this in front of me, and I have to put that time in. And so we feel like we're doing that. But I wonder if any of our like we have more strategy or more thoughts or more fantasies and it's actually oriented towards work. I mean, that's where our energy and time is going at the neglect of God's house. For some people, I think it has to do with school. We have a lot of students, um, a lot of medical students. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know what it's like to be a medical student. You know, like I'm not, I know it's hard and difficult and crazy. In theory, I know, I know, I don't really know. I'm a pastor. I don't get it. I understand that, you know. Yet, does this text not apply to you? Maybe there's still a place where you're going, you know what, like I'm going to wait till I establish myself and then I will orient my finances around God. I'll wait to establish myself and then I'll orient my time around God. For some of us, I think it's a physical house, you know, fixer-upper. You love fixer-upper. That's what you watch and you think it's amazing, and when you go to bed at night, you're like, I can change my curtain colors and change my car, you know what I'm saying? I'll get these sofas, and it'll be incredible. And literally, it's your physical house that is getting the best strategy, the best time, the best energy to the neglect of the Lord's house. Some, I think about our church, and I think a large place in which we or our people are often building our own house rather than God's house is actually in relationships. I think socially, oftentimes, we are trying to build stability in our friendships, but not to glorify God and elevate the kingdom, but to just feel like we fit in or connect. And that's what those relationships are forming around, or not building God's house, but really truly building ours. It can be financial. It could be a number of places. I don't know what it is for you. I just would think you probably have a place if you're human. And we're focusing on building our house 
not the Lord. So five and seven says, give careful thought to your ways. Reflection and introspection. It's like, journal about it. You know what I'm saying? Write it down. Like we sing three songs on the back end. Like don't run away. Don't run away from it. And here's one thing I do want to say. You can work your job. You can build relationships. You can do school all to glorify God and build his house. You can do all those for those reasons, okay? But don't let that just be an escape hatch when this is really calling us to assess our motive and heart. So it says, give careful thought. Literally, the exhortation is to the people of God to say, think about it, though. Don't object, just think about it. Are there places? Verse 8, he, he, he says, this is what we're to do. Go up into the mountains, bring down timber, and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. It's like, this is what we're to do. Go up into the mountains, bring timber down, and build the Lord's house. He's like, this is what we are to Focus on. We have a prayer team who, members of that team, every single service are outside of the service praying for you, for us. Praying for our heart to be changed. Praying for the prayer cards we've put in. Praying for God to work. This is one of the things they're praying for right now for us. Is that we would recognize that, that God would light a fire again. That there would be something in us where we really realize that the Lord's house is the best house. That there's joy to be found there. There's gladness to be found there, and for us to, to have our hearts kind of returned towards God, or for the first time. Look at verse 9, an important point. You expect much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. That word busy is like running, and the idea is that there's a flurry of activity as it relates to us building our own houses, and there's inactivity when it comes to thinking about the Lord's house. And to me, like, even that activity, it's like, what? Like, when you wake up, what are you thinking about, you know? Again, that's why I was like, Lord, be on my toes. Because what am I thinking about when I wake up? I'm thinking about my house. What I can build for me. Think about New Year's resolutions. I think so many of us are like, wow, this year to meet a year. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to get up there, I'm going to get to the gym, plan a fitness, 10 bucks, let's do it. You know what I'm saying? Like, come on. Get the thing, get looking all right, you know what I'm saying? Like, let's do it, let's do a thing. Now, I'm not trying to say all that's bad now, okay? But what I am trying to say is this, is if our self-happiness is the end, we will always be found empty. If our pleasure, our financial stability, our security, our comfort, if we are the end, we'll always be left wanting. That is the exhortation. It says you expected much, but it turned out to be little. Why? It says he blew it away. Look at verse 10. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else on the ground produces, on people and livestock and all the labor of your hands. Listen to this. Listen to this. Real. Haggai is saying, who is responsible for the people of Israel not being effective and productive? God. You see it? Their activity, their lack of activity, but then it says 11, God responded, right? 
I called, God called for the drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock. So here's the thing, here's the thing. Um, I don't think I have this. So Haggai is saying that, yes, it is their unfaithfulness, but that God actually is the reason behind their economic and financial difficulties. He is the one who blew it away. Verse 9. He blew it away. That their inability and the reason they're The reason they're eating and not getting full, the reason they're drinking and and not getting filled, the reason their purses have holes in it is not because God has been passive, but it's actually because of divine activity. You're like, what? God would do such a thing? What kind of God would do such a thing? Like a vindictive, jealous God? I say no, a loving one. Because the worst thing God could ever do for us is literally to take his hands off of us and allow us unmitigated success in our sin. To allow us some sort of comfort or some sort of happiness when we're focused on our own house. To allow us some type of contentment when we, when we think we are financially secure. Like that's the worst thing God could do because if God took his hands off and then we were some t- somehow satisfied in building our own house, we would be confused deceived, and at worst, damned, because we would think we are the end. Let me read you a quote by C.S. Lewis. It says this, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink, sex, and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see, listen, it is God's grace when he opens our eyes to the fact that this world can't satisfy us. It is God's grace when he reveals to us that our house will never be stable enough. Our financial bank account will never be good enough. We will never be able to be comforted by the pleasures of the world. It is God's grace when we realize that there's something so broken in us, we have to look beyond ourselves to him for joy and satisfaction. It is his grace, family, it is his grace when we realize that we will never be enough. We can never work hard enough. We can't even meet our own standards. Literally, how many of us are going to even keep our New Year's resolutions? We can't meet our own stuff, you know what I'm saying? We can never do it, but it is his grace when we realize, I can't ever do it. I'm going to stop trying. I'm going to start looking to him. I'm going to start looking at God's house. That's why it says in Psalm 8410, It is better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. To be a doorkeeper in God's house is better to be the ruler of our own. I promise, family, it is what it is. It's why in Matthew chapter 6, go read Matthew chapter 6 and and look at what it tells us to worry about. It says, don't worry about basically your house, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. It's like those are, again, it's like those are basic stuff. It says, don't worry about that. Focus on the kingdom. Because God's going to take care of the rest. That's why Jesus himself says in Luke 17, if we try to save our lives, we will lose it. But if we lose our life for him and the gospel, we will find it. It is only in God's house that we find true joy. So it is a grace when we actually are discontent with our own house. Family, I don't know, where are you building the Lord's or God's or your house and not the Lord's? What are the places? 
That's the rebuke of the text. But look at the response. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jozadak, and the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai. Because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. You see, a lot of times, I think, with rebukes, we can want to put up these guards of defense to not receive them. But correction is God's grace, family. Correction is a good thing. Hebrews 12 literally says God disciplines those he loves. He's like, like a father and his son. Like, this is, this is a loving part of God's operative hand in our lives. But look, they respond to it. Haggai, the whole book is, probably happens in three and a half months. And it's crazy how much can happen so fast. So they obey, but then look at, the, look at their response, verse 13, or look at Haggai's next words. It says this. The Lord's messenger gave this message of the Lord to the people. So they respond but then Haggai says, I want you to know something. Look, I am with you. God is with you. I want you to hear this. God is with you, literally. This is the promise from Genesis to Revelation. This is what it says in Ezekiel eleven twenty: They will be my people and I will be their God. I am with you. This is what Jesus says in John's gospel seven times. I am. He is. He is present. He has come. He's here. So the beauty about him being with us is what? Now when we're on that plane, we're not like, man, I got to make sure I put my oxygen mask on first. Because we know we will never get it on in time. The plane is hurtling down. We stand no chance. And we're so incompetent, we can't even put our mask on. But because God is real, we look next to us, and Jesus is there, and Jesus is the one who puts the mask on our face for us to breathe. We are the ones who pass out on the plane. He is the one who covers us. He is the one who atones for us. He is the one who saves us. He is the one who makes us new. He is the one who even gets us to focus on his own house. Not even us. It's him. It's looking to him. And to realize, listen, when we are the end, when we, when even if it's our joy or our satisfaction, our comfort, our stability, whatever the thing is that often is respect for me, whatever the thing is that's often getting us to chase our own house, we will always be left wanting. But when his glory becomes the, the greatest thing we're looking for, the end, well, then we realize when God's most glorified, I'm most satisfied, family. The chief in the man, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We start to realize that, that there is joy in the Lord, that truly to be a doorkeeper in his house is better than anything else, and our eyes start awakening anew, and there's a freshness. And the rebuke, listen, even the rebuke starts to taste sweet. Because we don't go, oh, man, I just got to work harder. Uh-uh. It's like, wow, there are new ways in which I can make God the center of my life. That's what happens. 
It's a reorientation, a reprioritization. It, there's an enthusiasm that just starts to well up inside of us and overflows onto other people. This is what it's like to work at the Lord's house. He says, I am with you, declares the Lord. Look at 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord, their God. Who did the stirring? The Lord did the stirring. Isn't that beautiful? All those spirits getting stirred by God. So yeah, they respond, and yeah, we act. But he's like, just in case you're wondering who's doing it, it's the Lord. The Lord is the only one who can open our eyes and stir our spirits to start to move towards him and enjoy him the way he is to be enjoyed. He's it. He's it. So let me leave you with these two kind of application points. Because the big question, I think, for us in some ways is, well, how do we build the house of the Lord? There literally isn't a temple anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like, there isn't a temple. Literally, we're not supposed to go get trees. It's not like, all right, y'all, we're going to go outside. There's some trees. We're going to build a house for Grace City Church finally. Like, that's not what it is. If you look at the New Testament, what are the two primary places that are called the house of the Lord? It's two. One is you individually. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, John 14 through 16. You, if we're in Christ, we literally become a place where the Holy Spirit dwells. Literally, the third person of the Godhead lives in you. Isn't that crazy? I mean, it's like, that's nuts. Literally, there's nowhere you go without it. Like, we become a temple from the Lord. So it's like, yeah, so self-care and self-help. Well, I, I think it's different than that. Here's why I think it's different. I don't mean to take so many shots at that, but here's why I think it's different. It's because it is not going, I'm going to do whatever makes me happy that kind of gives me rest or is recreational for me. It's instead going, how do I prepare myself to be a temple where the Lord dwells? How do I recognize that I, the Lord lives in me, and so he is the possessor of me. So how would he want to prepare his house, which is me? You look at 1 Corinthians 6, the exhortation there is purity and holiness. It's like, how am I preparing my house for the Lord? How am I making myself pure? How am I making myself whole? For Romans 12, not being conformed to the pattern of the world, but, renew, but, have, but being renewed in our minds. Letting our hands be participating in the things of God. But it's, but it's literally cherishing ourselves so much because we are not ours. We are his. That's a different type of self-care, self-help. You know what I'm saying? It's like we look to him to how to care for us, knowing that he is the owner of us because we are his house now. That's the first place. The second place, end of Ephesians 2, the church. It's the people of God. It's literally, if you read the end of Ephesians 2, we'll be there in our church series. We become a building in which the Lord dwells by his spirit. So there's a unique way in which the Lord dwells in you individually, but there actually is a unique way in which God dwells with us corporately. A unique inhabitation of the spirit within the people of God. Like, that's one of the reasons why church is important. It's, it's not just, like, how we gather on Sunday, but, like, there's a unique way in which the Spirit works. It's, it's kind of mystical and not explainable that you can't get online. I'm sorry. <laughs> you can't. Like, there's, there's something he does corporately because it's where the Spirit dwells. 
So it's a commitment to each other, family. It's knowing that there is a unique, special thing about the church, even though it be ugly sometimes. And even though it's made up of wicked people just like me. And even though it's got blemishes, we know one day it's not gonna because of Jesus, but there's a commitment to it because it's God's house. So we keep building it. We keep reconciling when we sin against one another. We keep serving one another even when that person you're serving is literally the most frustrating human being on the planet. They took a test and it came back positive. You know, like that's what we still serve them, clearly. It's the expectation for God to work, and so we're on our knees praying for him too on behalf of his bride, his body, the church. It's even this space as we come, like coming early, welcoming new people into the space because we, I want you to be a part of, of, of where the Spirit dwells. I want you to be a part of the inhabitation of the Holy Spirit. Like, I want that for you. It's this kind of commitment and a reprioritization, one that's really done by the Lord stirring up our spirits. Band, worship team, you can come back up. And as you do, again, I just want to remind us of this promise and then pray. The Lord's messenger gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you. Ezekiel 11, 19 and 20, it says, in those days, I will put a new spirit in them. I will give them an undivided heart. I will remove from them the heart of stone and put a heart of flesh in them. Then they will be careful to follow my decrees and keep my laws. And he says, I will be their people and they will be my God. God is in the business, family, of grabbing your heart and making it undivided, of removing a stony heart in us. One that so wants to commit to self, relentlessly, yet God's like, let my hand get in and let me change you, for my change is sweet and it's good and it's what we all need. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we confess, I confess, that there are so many ways in which I've been building my own house. There are so many ways in which I've focused on myself and one of those has to do with respect. I want people to respect me too much. And often I'm building a house where I think people admire decisions I make. I confess that to you, Lord, and I ask that you give me the power to repent. Jesus, I pray I would be in the business of building your house. I pray you'd stir up all of our spirits for that end. And I pray that we would be a people who know with certainty you are with us. That in some way, that's the one area we don't question. Because... God, you sent your son Jesus to this earth to live a life we could never live, to meet expectations we could never meet, to fulfill laws we could never fulfill, to do things we could never do. And one of those things was you took sin upon your chest and it got spread out there as you got nailed to that cross. You did die, you did go into the grave to take a punishment we deserve to take. But Jesus, you did something we could never do for ourselves. You rose again. You came out of the grave. And so we unite with you in your death, burial, and resurrection. We say we want to come out again. I know some people have never come out of that grave. And we want to ask and expect every time we gather 
But there is a day, and we hope today is that day, where they come out. Where they come out of the grave of their own expectations and workaholism. The grave of being a slave to school or a slave to people or a slave to respect or whatever it is. Where they would come out of that slavery and they'd come into freedom and new life that can only be found in you, Jesus. And they'd be a doorkeeper. Not a king. They'd be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. We ask that in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace City Church Podcast. Whether this is your first time with us or you find the Lord moving you to engage differently or just learn more about who we are, we encourage you to find us at our website at www.thegracecity.com to explore all of the ways that you can give, connect, and engage. Thank you again for being with us. Now go live as image bearers of the King.